In the realm of true crime, every crime scene tells a story. Every story has its truths. These are the stories from inside the crime scene tape that separates fact from fiction. We've come up with a thing that my primary goal is to go home safely at the end of the day, and then we start building an us versus them mentality versus everybody. After 26 years in law enforcement, Glenn Williams has experienced the toll that bearing witness to violence and tragedy can take. Williams, like many first responders, bottled up the pain and soldiered on, unaware that his PTSD was wrecking his life at home and on the job. Hello, this is Robert Riggs. In this episode of the True Crime Reporter podcast, I look behind the badge of the men and women in blue. Glenn Williams has written a book titled Bridging the Gap, aimed at helping police officers and other first responders heal after years of trauma. He speaks on the subject across the United States. In our interview, Williams opens up about the emotional damage he suffered from years of seeing the worst of the worst on the police beat. Glenn, when someone reads your book, what do you want somebody that knows nothing about policing or first responders, what do you want them to know and understand? I want them to understand that everyday officers, because I was just an everyday cop, experience a lot of things that affect them and their families. And I want them to know that then when officers read it, that it's okay to talk about it. Because when I started, it was not okay to talk about it. If you said you needed help, you could be found unfit for duty and fired. And I want people to know um, the variations because officers come in to make a difference. And we're running into the things that make the difference and not holding back and how those things affect us as we attempt to keep our communities safe. You entered policing very idealistic, but as I go through your book, life in policing really sours on you. Can you start at the beginning and, and take us through the journey of what happened? I've seen suicides. And the results of suicide, one in particular was the guy put a shotgun in his mouth and, and redecorated his entire basement. And the way we, back then, we didn't really talk about these things at all. Just sucked them up and blocked them off. But we also made light and cops have a sixth sense of humor. And that's how we deal with a lot of those things. Pulling a child out of a pond and doing CPR and not being able to save them. That's... That's one of the worst ones. Um, anytime a child is involved, that's just horrific. And we just bottle those things up. And there's still, things are starting to change today, but they still haven't changed. Um, if we don't acknowledge them, they don't exist until later in life um, when the buildup is so big that it comes out in nightmares and in over drinking and in all kinds of other behaviors that are not 
good for personal relationships. Well, how did it manifest itself with you? I, I think you're on your, correct me, on your third wife now at wrecked marriages and. Yes. Initially, I'd come home and I didn't want to do anything. Once I was home, I did not want to deal with anything. And so it's funny, it just starts if my wife would ask me, What do you want for dinner? Uh, whatever you want. I'm good. I don't, I really don't care tonight. And it wasn't that I didn't care and that I didn't have a desire. I just didn't want to deal with making a decision because I'd been making life and death decisions all day. And then it worked into anger. Like when my kids would do something, I would instantly yell at them. And then I would back off, go, oh, wait, wait a minute. But that was a P that's a PTSD reaction. And I didn't even didn't even know what PTSD was back in the early nineties, mid nineties. Decision making, it affects it affects that because after you're doing these things day in and day out, okay, I did CPR and I on a on child. I got home. I just wanted to go into a dark corner and and escape. And those are things that don't work well for relationships, especially when your spouse doesn't understand those things. And I couldn't have her understand them because I didn't understand them. William says that the training he received as a rookie at the police academy did not prepare him for the violence and trauma that he was going to experience. They had a four-hour session and brought our spouses in. And they talked to us about communication with our spouse, how the divorce rate in law enforcement is so high, which it is extremely high. And there are going to be things we can't talk about because of an ongoing investigation, or we're not going to want to talk about because it's just too gruesome and sick. And yet they, and then they said, but keep your communication open with your spouse so you don't get divorced. And we all walked out at the end of four hours going, uh, and, uh, and, and there was no answer. It took me 25 years and I finally came up with the answer of how to do that. And that's one of the things I share when I talk to people and teach people. Williams climbed the ranks from patrol to detective, but a homicide hit close to home when he answered a call to a daycare provider. When I got there, sitting in the uh, car in handcuffs was a young man who was my neighbor. And the lady that had been killed was his mother. She was the babysitter for my kids and had been for years. They were like family. Yes. And she had been strangled. And I had to, when I saw who it was, I had to recuse myself from the case because of conflict of interest. Um, and so I was given the chore. The, the son was the suspect, and he was later convicted of killing his mother. And that one, hit real, real close to home. She was a good lady. Um, everybody knew knew her um, in the neighborhood and the local church, and she was really active all around and took, taking care of everybody's kids and did a phenomenal job. And just to see her laying there, having been strangled, was hard well in in that job you see the worst of the worst of people yeah you see 
bad people or good people having a bad day. You never get to deal with a lot of the good stuff. Well, I know from doing ride-alongs with state troopers and police during my career, no one's ever happy to see them. <laughs> no, it's never there for a good reason or a reason that makes people happy. That is true. Does that chip away at the officer's psyche? Uh, do they put up a shield? Do they, were they then judged to be insensitive? What happens? Yes, we have defense mechanisms and, and humor is one of those trying to deflect the feelings. And some of the other ways are we just block things out and we don't talk and we put on that, that mask. And that kills communication because we don't want to talk to people. And after a while, I've talked to guys all over the country now. And after a while, we've come up with a thing that my primary goal is to go home safely at the end of the day. And then we start building an us versus them mentality versus everybody. And that's one of the things that I talk about and try to break down is and get rid of that us versus them mentality because not everybody is bad or evil. And yet we're out there treating everybody as if they are as a defense. So we don't let any of these feelings seep in. We don't let any of these things come into our life um, that can hurt us. Do you think that mentality has contributed to some of the, the acts of horrific violence and abuse we've seen by officers on civilians? To a point, I think the officers that have conducted those are just are not good officers. And we're having other issues to begin with and probably should never have become police officers. But overall, I do, I think it contributes, yeah, because it's a judgment. And one of the things we as officers need to get away from is judgment of the person. I learned this one day while I was transporting a guy to jail. He had stolen several hundred dollars worth of groceries. And he also then had felony warrants. And what I discovered in talking to him is he had no education. He never finished junior high. He had no world experience, never been out of the neighborhood he'd been in, and he had no kept money. So those three things, um, you know, he, he didn't even have a job at the time. And so those three things, lack of cash, lack of experience, and lack of education limit options and choices. And I, you know, I asked him, why did you do this? And he said, well, I was trying to provide for my kids. I've got three kids and I needed to get food for them. That's actually good, providing for your kids. Unfortunately, he violated the laws of society to do so. And I explained a few things to him. There are places he could have gone that he did not was not aware of, that he could have gotten food free and without risk. And he did not know because of those three things, lack of experience. And I, so I learned not to judge him because he was doing the best he could with the circumstances he had. But I get to judge his actions, which violated the law. And so I think we've got to shift so we're looking at the action and not the person. Well, when I've seen these cases of uh, abuse and murder committed by officers, I and other officers I, I know, we're, we, we've sat and looked at it like, how'd they ever get on the force in the first place? Has there been something wrong with a psychological screening or the wrong people doing the training. Now, I know one thing from covering government is the city councils don't provide the funding and training is usually the first thing cut if there are budget cuts. Weigh in on that. That is a 
a tough one, but you're right. We don't have the money. I was a background investigator and I did, I don't know how many backgrounds for two different departments. And sometimes things slide by that you just don't catch. And I had one where the guy was hired. And then later, as I got to know him better, I found out things from him that had been hidden by his neighbors and by everybody that I had talked to. And that would probably have kept him from being hired. He turned out to be a decent officer and he only worked for about two or three, four years and then he quit. But he had an alcohol problem and that was not disclosed by anybody mm-hmm. when I did his background. Later getting to know him, it was it became quite obvious. And so we do what we can do. I felt really bad on that one. There are somehow we've got to get deeper on the backgrounds. But again, that takes money. And you're you're absolutely right. The politics involved with city councils and things, the first things to get cut is money. And especially nowadays, I mean, I, I can't even understand how the people in Atlanta are trying to burn down this new training center there for the law enforcement, because training is what's going to make it work better and make it safer for the citizenry. And so they're cutting off their nose to spite their face. I'll be back after this break. Hello, this is Robert, and I want to ask a small favor. Will you please tell your friends who love true crime to follow the True Crime Reporter podcast? As you know, it's one of the few podcasts where you can hear raw, unfiltered accounts from law enforcement experts, victims, and even convicted criminals. And please sign up for my free newsletter. The form is on every page of my website. Finally, I am so thankful to my Apple listeners who have given the podcast five-star reviews. Your reviews on all of the channels are extremely helpful in spreading the word about this podcast. Now, back to our episode. You travel around the uh, country speaking to law enforcement. Can you give me a sense of what their mood is. I mean, I run into many officers that are demoralized. You know, they feel like they've got a target on their back. That is absolutely true. A lot of the guys that I talk to, they're simply hanging on to get their retirement and get out. A lot of them are in to the career 10, 15, 17 years, and there's no other options because if they quit before uh, 20 years, they lose their retirement or it's cut so bad that it's not a good retirement. And so a lot of guys are really doing that. And I'm, I'm looking at how Seattle's shorthanded, Portland's shorthanded, Minneapolis is shorthanded, not by one or two officers, but by hundreds. And nobody wants to come in and do the job anymore. It's not an easy job. Officers are asked to do the things that the public does not want to even admit are there. And yet we get to go and straight in and handle them and work it out. So why do we want to put our lives at risk? There is no reward anymore. I mean, the reward in the past was I got a pension. Plus, self-fulfillment is the biggest reward. We do, don't, we do it to make a difference. And making a difference isn't happening anymore. Where do, you, where do you think we're headed then in terms of security? You know, and, and it's really kind of the first responsibility of government is just protect us. I am not sure. I see 
and I feel things shifting a little bit. People are suddenly realizing they screwed up. Like some of the bigger cities, crime rates have gone up so horrifically that they're kind of going, oh, okay, maybe that wasn't such a good idea. And But they've set us back probably 10 years. And sending us back 10 years is not a good thing because things are getting better with the training and the things that officers deal with. You know, one of the things we're doing is officers, if you've been on four or five years, you've got trauma. There's some form of PTSD or some form of trauma there. And we're sending traumatized people out to protect people in trauma. And you wonder why there's problems. The trauma makes affects our decision making. It affects our judgment. And those are things that, you know, like I responded in anger and then I realized, in fact, I just learned something last year. I got in a lot of foot chases and fights. I mean, a horrific number, probably between 40 and 50. And I suddenly realized after hearing the psychologist talk last year about thrill seeking because PTSD is an adrenaline-based issue, and we seek that thrill. And then I look back at how many of those foot chases I talked myself into. I was proud of my reputation of when I came to work, things happened. But now I look at it, how many of those things did I cause and create? And then we wonder, are some of these other things that I, I started wondering, are some of these other things that we see a result of PTSD that's not being dealt with? According to the National Institute of Mental Health, post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, is a disorder that develops in some people who have experienced a shocking, scary, or dangerous event. Anyone can experience PTSD at any age. This includes combat veterans and people who have experienced or witnessed a physical or sexual assault, abuse, and an accident, a disaster, or other serious events. People who have PTSD may feel stressed or frightened, even when they are not in danger. Symptoms of PTSD usually begin within three months of the traumatic event, but they sometimes emerge later. To meet the criteria for PTSD, a person must have symptoms for longer than one month, and the symptoms must be severe enough to interfere with aspects of daily life, such as relationships or work. I have placed a link into the show notes to more information about the signs, symptoms, and treatment of PTSD. Hyperfocus becomes part of it, too. You know, we get the sound reflexes where um, a loud noise, uh, startle reflex, I guess is what it's called. It's just a, that's a basic one. That's really nothing bad, but you get hyper aware. Some people actually go into depression. I mean, there's there's so many varied symptoms. The reaching out and lashing out in anger and then backing off going, oh, that's not what I want. That's another symptom. Alcoholism or turning to things to numb you. I know I lived at my cabin by myself for three years um, after my second divorce, while I was going through my second divorce. And I was, you know, I was 57 miles from work. So I'd get up at 3.30 in the morning, I'd go to work, work six to four, I'd get home about seven at night, because traffic in the evening was a little bit worse. And once I got home, I didn't want to do anything. And so that's another thing, and not making decisions. We don't want to do that, because we've been doing it all day. And if you don't make a decision, there's no risk, but in reality, you're making a decision. And we don't 
understand that. I started drinking, and I, at the time, I was having nightmares three, four, five times a month. And, you know, working through things was, was tough. I, I wasn't even at the point yet to work through things. And then I woke up. Now, I was drinking, and I was a good kid because I know I had to work and I know things, but I don't only have two drinks a night. But they were 32 ounces each. So I got numb. I was feeling no pain. And that's not the way to deal with it. But that's what the result was. And so I, it, I was able to sleep a little bit. And so a lot of guys turned to alcohol. A lot of guys turned to drugs. A lot of guys, um, whether it be uh, prescription or not, especially after they retire. I don't know how many guys I know that have died from alcohol after they retired. And a lot of committed suicide. You're saying guys a lot, but um, what's the impact on women that are in uniform? Oh, yeah. And when I say guys, I mean- in I know. It's the uniform. kind of the brotherhood. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody in uniform. But what I've discovered on the women is a lot of them actually handle it better because women, it's okay to talk. And so they find their girlfriends or they find somebody and they talk to them. And that's one of the, that's the beginning of healing is you've got to get it out because we're taught, we don't share, we don't talk. That's what we're taught. Mm -hmm. And that's what I was taught as a kid. And when I was a new officer, that's what I was taught. Don't talk about this. And so didn't bottled it up and look out the, the end result was not good. A lot of women actually will go talk to people about things before. Now it's becoming more commonplace. There's a lot of people out there where we're talking about officer wellness, but unfortunately there's a lot of departments out there that put on this nice look of the officer wellness program, but it's a facade. They're really not buying into it. And then the first thing that gets cut is that program if there's a problem. And I've seen that happen in the last few months, several times. What about the other first responder units, paramedics, fire? What, what, what are you seeing in their ranks? Same thing. Exact same thing. I mean, they're, they're seeing the same stuff we are, and they're, they're dealing with the same things we are. They're not dealing with the criminal aspect of it, but they're dealing with the, uh, the medical and the uh, you know, guys going in on a house fire that killed three people. That's horrific. Or you know, they're, they're dealing with the same stuff. And the military is the same. My son and daughter were both, one was in Iraq and one was in Afghanistan and would tell me about firefights and things they got in. And the military is the exact same. The whole military uh, public safety area is, in my opinion, a brotherhood of all because we're out doing the jobs that nobody else wants to do. And we're seeing the things that nobody wants to see and experiencing the things that nobody wants to experience. And then when we come back, we just have to deal with it. And that's what we've been done for years and years. The awareness is becoming, it's become, people are becoming more aware. But the suicide rate, I think, in the military is about 22 a day or something like that. And, you know, and it's probably higher than that. The same thing in law enforcement, especially after you retire. It's, you know, if you're not working through it. And one of the ways I discovered to work through it, start with is journaling. Because that lets my mind know it's okay to put it out. Mm -hmm. And I can journal and I don't have to share that with anybody until I'm ready to. Well, if you could be 
king for a day, what would you change? What would you do? I would do some of the departments are amazing what they're doing now. Mandatory, I won't say counseling, but a mandatory meeting at least twice a year. And with a psychologist, I would bring in a psychologist or therapist on board in a department and have them do that. That way, any problems that are be, the best time to solve anything is before it happens. And so they can jump on things and get on board. I think that would be a huge thing. And if that would have been years ago, because like I say, we were taught, you can't talk about these things until they turn into a bigger issue. Um, I see that as a huge step. And that's what I would wish that that would have started years ago. And for the listeners here, if they come into contact with an officer, what's your advice to them? Just be polite and respectful because the officer will more than likely react the same way you are. If you come in angry and hot, that's what you're going to get back. And so if you're polite and respectful, I've <laughs> I've let people go just because they were polite and respectful on things that I could. Obviously, if it's a felony or something major, I can't or couldn't. But yeah, it's, it's kind of like uh, treat others like you, you want to be treated. In closing, here's my reporter's recap and reflections. I commend Glenn Williams for opening up wounds in his personal life to educate us about the PTSD suffered by first responders. Perhaps we should also start thanking them for their service as we do military veterans. I became aware of PTSD after my embedded reporter assignment with the lead army unit during the invasion of Iraq in 2003. And all of the men in my family were World War II veterans, and none of them would discuss the war. Looking back, I recognize signs of PTSD they suffered many years later. I believe the prescription is to open up, start talking, and seek professional help. Now, that's easier said than done. Many young men, including yours truly, were taught that showing feelings is a sign of weakness. With the help of strong women in our family, we're trying to change that in the future generations. You've been listening to the True Crime Reporter podcast. Stay true, stay safe, and stay tuned for more stories from inside the crime scene tape. This is Robert Riggs reporting. Please tell your friends who love true crime that they can bypass secondhand tales and get their true crime fix here with authentic stories straight from the source. Tell them that True Crime Reporter is one of the few podcasts where you can hear raw, unfiltered accounts from law enforcement victims and even convicted criminals. And sign up for my free newsletter on the homepage of TrueCrimeReporter.com. It's your gateway to a world of knowledge and awareness in the realm of true crime and your personal safety. Thanks for listening, and until we meet again, be prepared, don't get scared. This is Robert Riggs reporting.